Welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast, where our mission is to highlight and connect researchers in the T1D or type 1 diabetes space. I'm Monica Wesley for the Sugar Science and your host for today's podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Adam Ramsey. He's an MD-PhD at University of British Columbia in Canada. He has some interesting background. He is, uh, in 2019, he did his doctoral work within the lab of Dr. Tim Kiefer at UBC. And the title of his thesis was uh, Removing, Replacing, and Processing of Pro-Insulin and Beta Cells. A fun fact about Adam is that he represents Team Canada in powerlifting at the World Games in 2016. He got a bronze medal, which was pretty awesome. And when, I, when, when pressed, he let us know that his uh, bench press top weight was 563 pounds, which is hard to even imagine. But thank you very much for joining us, Adam, and welcome. Oh, thank you very much for the kind introduction, Monica. Yeah, it's great. So let's talk a little bit about how you became scientifically interested in type 1 diabetes. Can you fill us in there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My story started as an undergraduate student. I think like many people, I uh, sought out opportunities to be involved in research. Uh, and uh, at, the, at that time, I did an honors thesis actually looking at the, the impact of uh, bariatric surgeries on glycemic regulation. And then uh, when I came to UBC in 2013 for the MD-PhD, uh, I was given the opportunity to join the Kiefer Lab. And, you know, in, in the Kiefer Lab, I found myself drawn to doing research that I felt could uh, have a big impact on people's lives. And I think that type 1 diabetes is a disease where we have so much room to improve patient quality and quantity of life. And so that's been the passion that's kept me going for these last eight years now. Yeah, it's great. I, I love I love the the path you've taken, you know, to kind of come at it from both an MD and a PhD perspective, and that um, you've done some very serious research already. So that uh, sets you apart. I wonder, you know, what are, what are your thoughts about the work that's being done right now in, in, in your field that's addressing type 1 diabetes? Mm-hmm. I think that the great thing when we talk about the work being done in the field of type 1 diabetes is that there's lots of hope, there's lots of avenues forward. And I know I, I, uh, my crystal ball is hazy and I can't tell you exactly what can happen, but what I can say is that, I, that patients are gonna be better off. We have, you know, uh, with the expansion of technologies for the, you know, the bionic pancreas using multiple hormones, with right. work championed largely by Viacite looking at stem cell therapies for diabetes, you know, based on the foundational work of uh, a transplant, obviously with the University of Alberta being a hub. I think that, you know, these, these paths forward are going to lead to patients having better glycemic control, more freedom in life. And, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, I just spent the past month doing some endocrinology work here at Vancouver General Hospital. And, you know, hopefully through this progress, we'll have fewer patients coming in struggling with diabetic ketoacidosis and those chronic complications that we, we hear about and, uh, and patients deal with. Yeah, fantastic. I, that's the general impression we're getting from all um, sort of all walks of scientists uh, that we're speaking with. That there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of exciting science happening right now. Um, let's talk a little bit about the work you're doing in your lab. So I just love this new paper you had. Thank you. Um, basically, it's revisiting pro-insulin processing, evidence that human beta cells process pro-insulin with pro-hormone convertase PC one-third, but not PC2. So can you just sort of wade us into that paper, give us a background, and then just talk specifics? Yeah, sure. So um, just starting from the basics, it's important to recognize that 
insulin is first synthesized as a larger precursor called uh, pro-insulin. And in order to make the biologically active uh, end target of mature insulin, there needs to be an endoproteolytic cleavage to remove the C-peptide in the middle. We have the N-terminal B-chain, the C-terminal A-chain, and the C-peptide in the middle. And uh, there's been wonderful research done for several decades, um, and I think largely culminating in the work of uh, Don Steiner around uh, 1999, 2002, where they characterized mice that were def deficient uh, in the pro-hormone convertase enzymes, PC1-3 and PC2, and they show quite convincingly uh, in rodents, or in mice, I should specify, uh, that the processing pathway is uh, first a cleavage at the BC junction by PC13, followed by cleavage by PC2 at the CA junction. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, this theory that I, I think is very true in mice has been largely accepted, and there hasn't been uh, as much attention in the last two decades since then. Um, but uh, in the Kiefer lab, we sort of meandered across a few little hints in the literature uh, that suggested that in humans, uh, in vivo, in human beta cells, that PC2 may not be so important. And so we sought to investigate that and ended up going down a path leading to this uh, paper you're referring to, where we conclude that um, in human beta cells, PC2 uh, does not appear to have a, a role in processing human pro-insulin in a healthy state. Yeah, I saw that. And, and so that was pretty surprising, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that uh, for those that are embedded in the field of pro-insulin processing, it's quite a controversial statement. Uh, and certainly I think that we are seeing some challenge and that's great to see some skepticism on the work. Certainly, uh, you know, it, uh, it does challenge what's been accepted for a long time. Um, and uh, I look forward to people following up and, and uh, seeing if they find the, the same things. But for us, I think that we saw such a clear pattern in what's been published, though not directly making the statement, paired with our studies that we felt confident making those conclusions. Right. I think that's so important. The... Um you know, the, the ability to go back through the literature like you did and look at it with a discerning eye um, through the lens of your discipline and, mm -hmm. and you sort of gather the evidence, right? And then you go forward and do your own experimentation. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think also that this whole idea of um, find, we're finding more and more places where the mouse and human pathways, um, you know, separate. They mm -hmm. don't always, you know, the anatomy is different. Now this pathway is, is showing differences and there's other things that are different. Um, what, is, what is your perspective on that? I mean, we know the mouse, mice has, have been a, an excellent model and accessible, mm -hmm. but yeah. think about sort of future work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, when feasible to pair uh, uh, basic science work working with mouse or cell line models with human-specific studies, I think that's extremely valuable. Uh, and so in the case of our work, we were fortunate to uh, have access to uh, human islets prepared at the University of Alberta at the islet core, uh, and also have access to tissue sections from the islet core as well. And uh, through having access to that, I think that it allows us to uh, pay closer attention to our assumptions 
And uh, I think that where possible, this is, is extremely important to continue to do. Um, yeah. yeah, I do think, so when a lot of uh, people down here in the States and other places too use NPOD for the tissue yeah. samples. And um, are you finding up in Canada that the uh, University of Alberta is sort of a, a staple, a go-to place to get samples? And what's the process for getting samples for Canadians and non-Canadians? Mm -hmm. uh, to be honest, I can't comment on non-Canadian access, but uh, it's relatively uh, straightforward for Canadian labs to register to do, have uh, ethical approval to work with the human tissues. And... University of Alberta is very open to share when they have uh, research quality pilots available. That's um, great. And then, as I said, also just uh, fixed tissue sections for immunostaining staining are available for a, a fee, of course. Yeah. Are they the biggest repository in Canada? Uh, yes, I'm positive that's correct. We have yeah, also uh, had samples from University of British Columbia here as well. There's a small uh, islet facility here, but the University of Alberta is, I mean, it's a leader in the whole world. So certainly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's sort of the go-to place for uh, mm -hmm. young researchers in Canada. That's what I'm trying to highlight. Um, and is there, you know, do they do they have any special um, anything special that you need, or can you come in as? Do you have to have a clinical uh, affiliation, or do, can you come in as a young researcher, a postdoc, a graduate student, or how does it how does it work? Is it easy? Yeah, I mean, uh, I can't say I was specifically involved in the in the keepers labs access but there's no specific clinical work done in the keeper lab it's i mean uh dr keeper is a phd not a physician so i think for basic science researchers it is readily available yeah right yeah i don't mm -hmm. want to just you know flog that point but it is kind of interesting um to appreciate the different you know how how accessible it can be if scientists do want to uh use these resources it just mm -hmm. i want to highlight that and celebrate it really absolutely um, and so, okay, so what's next? What it, uh, in terms of this, you know, pro-hormone convertase? Yeah. Um, so I, I think that there's definitely at least two ways forward that are important. I think the first is certainly further exploration of the basic science. And so, you know, as I, I mentioned, uh, we're confident in our findings, but I think that we look forward to others uh, engaging in this topic and as we allude to in our title revisiting a critical aspect of beta cell physiology that's been you know somewhat receiving less attention for many years you know and then beyond just clarifying what is the normal physiology i think that we should also consider why it's important and what's what's there to gain by having a better understanding and so you know for example you know there's been a classic work done for example by ron Kahn that show that in humans, um, we produce, uh, even in healthy humans, they produce some pro-insulin circulation and also some of the pro-insulin intermediate that's processed at the BC junction. And this contrasts with mice, for example, where they produce both some uh, partially processed pro-insulin at the BC junction as well as partially processed at the CA junction. And so this separates out some different physiology also perhaps points to the point that in humans, we are unlikely to have in beta cells an enzyme that has a predisposition to process at the CA junction. Otherwise, you'd expect us to have some of that intermediate in circulation, which we appear not to. Um, and then beyond that, let's start thinking about disease. So there's been excellent work published showing prognostic value, uh, as well as associative evidence, 
that impaired processing uh, is, is demonstrated in patients with type 2 diabetes, in patients with impaired glucose tolerance, in patients with elevated uh, autoantibodies, in patients with type 1 diabetes, including patients with type 1 diabetes who have pro-insulin but no detectable C-peptide. So the, the, the disease relevance seems very strongly linked. We need to figure out why that's happening and why it's useful to us. Is it, um, you know, let's just talk about the cell biologist because I'm always, you know, excited about that. But sure. so inside the insulin vesicle or, you know, the secretory vessel, vesicle yeah. is, mm. is where the pro-insulin, right, gets separated from the C-peptide, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And is, this is where the PC-1-3 is living. Mm. Yeah, so um, alongside pro-insulin, which is, of course, first made in the ER and eventually makes it to the secretor granules, as you say, PC-1 has the same journey, so to speak. So uh, it's made side by side and, and, and progresses through the pathway with pro-insulin. And so, uh, in fact, one of the unique features of PC-1 that we employ in our paper is that it actually does gain some catalytic activity uh, in the Golgi, in the trans-Golgi network, before hmm. making secretor granules. And so that gives you, uh, in the case of our work, the unique opportunity to uh, inhibit progression of pro-insulin to secretory granules, which is where PC2 can function uh, in other cells and in road in mouse beta cells, um, whereas um, PC1 will, will function in the transcology. Um, and so uh, the most efficient processing does, though, happen, as you've alluded to, once we reach the mature granule, where we have the fully acidified state, and we mm-hmm. have the calcium. So PC1 does gain and have more substantial uh, catalytic activity in that environment, but it does have some before. So does the, um, when there's a viral insult, like Coxsackie, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this might be, I don't know if you're, you've looked at this, but it, does that change the acidification of um, these internal chambers of the, the RER and the Golgi, I mean, could it be impacting this enzyme in some way and just, you know, messing with it and without this enzyme, you're not going to be able to move forward to making, you know, full insulin? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a very intriguing question. I can't say uh, I'm a virologist, but you're absolutely right that if there was a process that interfered with full acidification or interfered with calcium channels, you would inhibit the normal functioning of the prohormone convertase enzymes. I can't specifically say if Coxsackie virus does do that. Um, I just threw that out there because it's been yeah, like, you know, one of the flaming guns. Yeah, absolutely. Um, smoking. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, smoking, flaming, <laughs> either way. Too, <laughs> talking too long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that, I mean, the, the, as far as like our evidence of where processing is defective, you know, it's, it's predominantly once patients are autoantibody positive that we have data. Um, so as to whether before that, if there is some environmental insult, such as a viral infection, as you allude to, uh, I can't comment if there is any defective coincidence at the time of the infection. Um, but perhaps later on, even before we see obvious uh, defects in the histology of the pancreas, you start to see that there's more pro-insulin. So right. it does support a hypothesis that defective pro-insulin processing happens very proximally in the disease. It's one of the earlier events, yeah. but it's not clear to what extent it's causal, right? It could merely be associative as a yeah. marker. It um, could totally be just some other 
you know, something happening parallel. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's interesting hints in the literature, like uh, studies on patients with familial hyperproinsulinism or patients that have mutations, which in PC1, the gene PCSK1, which we can talk about later, but, you know, there's this, these patients and they have extremely poor processing of proinsulin with massive circulating proinsulin, but they don't really have a super high susceptibility to diabetes. So it does suggest that it, in and of itself, it's not sufficient to induce the disease, but that's not to say it still couldn't be contributory, especially in the, in, the, in the situation of a patient who is highly susceptible with many risk factors. Right. That's interesting. So let's talk about those types of patients that have a mutation in their PC1 gene. Yeah. What goes so on with them? What is that? Yeah, an interesting uh, story of the literature starting with uh, O'Reilly reporting a patient uh, who had a PCSK1 mutation. And uh, over the years now, there's, I guess, a few dozen patients that have been reported. I'm not sure on the specific number, but at any rate, they have this phenotype of obesity, which is thought to be attributed to defective processing of POMC in the, in the wow. hypothalamus in the pituitary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they have gastrointestinal dysfunction, um, most of them do. Um, as far as proinsulin, as you would guess, they have extremely elevated circulating levels of proinsulin. And kind of curiously, if I may make a small sidetrack, they also have a little bit of this CA processed proinsulin intermediate, which is the DES6465, which suggests that there's some other enzyme around that isn't usually around that's processing at the CA junction, which could potentially be some adaptive or perhaps maladaptive expression of PC2 uh, in this PC1 deficient state, but that's a complicated story. So um, all this to say that these patients have lots of proinsulin, but curiously don't seem to have a lot of diabetes. And, th- and you're talking about type 1 diabetes. They actually don't have any form of diabetes. These Nothing. Patients. Neither, even though they have obesity, they don't enter into t- type 2. Yeah, there is some, I mean, the, as I said, the case reports are somewhat new. I believe the first was 1995. Um, and there's some indication that these patients do have susceptibility to have a insulin resistant, more type two diabetes like phenotype later on in life. Yeah. Not an autoimmune process and uh, not a beta cell destructive phenotype that you might expect for a type one like presentation. That's so interesting. So it's mm. like, maybe there's some, you know, like you said, with if they have some of that CA processed, who has stepped in to fill the void? Yeah. That's who's, an excellent way to put it. You're totally right. Yeah. Who's on the second string? Who's now playing on the field? Yeah. And there's lots of little hints in the literature as well that you know the PCs they can they can be regulated. They can swap, uh, so to speak. Whether or not that's in the PC1 or PC2 mutant uh, mouse models where there starts to be some swap in proglucagon processing, suggesting that there's a shift in PC1 to PC2 in gut, for example, in the PC1 knockout mouse, um, or this little hint from uh, humans with the PC1 mutations. So cool. Where, is the, um, where else is PC1 found in the body? In a, what types of cells? Oh, yeah, in many cells. Um, so... Uh, from a diabetes-centric perspective, yeah. talk about beta cells. Uh, in the islet, it's actually not, uh, at least human specifically, it's not super clear to what extent there may be some role of PC1 in processing prosomatostatin. Mm. Doesn't seem to be that way based on studies in the in the PC1 mutant mice. Um, 
but studies in humans are less consistent with maybe some PC1 in delta cells. Yeah. Um, and then perhaps most famously would be processing of proglucagon in the intestinal L cells. Oh. Yeah, that rely on PC1. So proglucagon is this incredible, interesting story of a precursor where it's two main hormone products. One is glucagon, which obviously acts as a counter-regulatory hormone to raise glucose and is classically produced in alpha cells by PC2-mediated exclusion. Whereas in, in intestinal L cells, they also express proglucagon, but via uh, uh, cleavage by PC1, they make GLP-1, which is a, an incretin hormone, which yeah. acts to stimulate insulin and lower blood sugar. So it really highlights how critical normal pro hormone processing is and the regulation thereof. Um, yeah, it's, it's, in, it's like con contextual, right? Because it's doing different things in different places, like opposite things. Yeah, and I mean, it even can get more complicated than that. Not only different PCs in different cells, but even the same PC with the same pro-hormone, but in different cells. So I mentioned, for example, pro-somatostatin in delta cells of the islet mm -hmm. relying on PC2 in mice, whereas somatostatin is also produced Essentially, in the hypothalamus, and studies on uh, knockout mouse and doing neuropeptidomic studies show that actually it looks like PC1 is responsible. So, the same propeptide, just different cells, and the different PCs can do the same cleavage just in these different contexts. So, there's so much left to understand. Yeah, it's like you need a you need a, an atlas here. <laughs> for I mean, it's like uh, you need a, a, a map plus also a dictionary combined. Yes, fair enough. Yeah, forgive my jargon. Please do ask for clarification. If no, I... no, I'm following you. Um, and I'm sure many will. But it, this, is, this is fascinating. I have not really dug into this side of things. Mm -hmm. um, and it really is so interesting that in a different context, these, this enzyme can act differently. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. So if the beta cell is like, if things are all well and good and it's cranking along and doing everything, but then when it's infected by some, by a virus or some kind of insult, mm -hmm. maybe it shifts to plan B, who knows? It, it starts doing something else. Maybe yeah. it has the ability to shift, who knows? Yeah, I mean, it could even be something as simple, so to speak, as the fact that PC1 doesn't seem to have a lot of redundancy in function. So even a heterozygous mutation in mice or humans leads to defects. So we don't have a lot of leeway, so to speak. So if there is some insult causing a subtle defect in the beta cell through inflammation, through infection, through whatever process, um, then that could be enough to lead to defects in processing. Wow, that's really interesting. I, has anyone looked at the, um, the L cells carefully um, and in type 1 diabetics and seen if there's the same or any kind of change in functionality there? Um, I'm not personally aware of that, uh, that work actually, um, but there is some interesting work on alpha cells showing that uh, they may have some regulation of expression and start making PC1 in diabetes as perhaps an adaptive response, at least goes the theory that PC1 can mediate excision of GLP-1, which will have mitogenic factors on the neighboring beta cells, which are right. live or allow them to replicate perhaps. Yeah protective yeah this is all very cool what is your next set of experiments if you can share just maybe sort of the hit the high notes don't give everything away <laughs> <laughs> uh so uh, 
I guess maybe regrettably, I'm, I'm, I'm largely occupied with finishing medical school at this moment, so I don't have a lot of time to follow up, but um, I did allude to the story of prosomatostatin, and yeah. that I think that we don't have good clarity on, in human delta cells, how is prosomatostatin processed? And, you know, there's two different main products made from somatostatin, two C-terminal peptides, somatostatin 14 and 28. And so I'm curious to clarify what's made in delta cells and how is it made? And is it another place where uh, mice and humans are different? Right. Yeah. And wouldn't it be cool to also see what happens in, um, you know, as implanted cells? You talked a little bit yeah. earlier about biocyte. Mm-hmm. Uh, has, have people been looking at this whole paradigm in, um, you know, cells that are derived from stem cells to, you know, make sure that it's all clicking along as, as, as expected? Yeah, that's a great point in terms of verifying that uh, that's one aspect of normal function and answering the question of whether or not that is one way in which these stem cell-derived pancreatic progenitor cells that then can differentiate or finish maturation in vivo into insulin-producing cells, whether or not they do have this normal function and when they gain it, should they gain it. Um, and I think that, you know, just speaking even simply, that you know, this research highlights the fact that we need to know more about um, basic beta cell physiology because many people look for PC2 as a marker for mature beta cells. Yeah. We suggest that perhaps that's, that's not useful and could instead uh, be a marker of immature cells or dysfunctional cells. Um, yeah. So I think it is an excellent question to address both in clinical work, as you've alluded to with the clinical trial sponsored by Biocide, as well as future preclinical work to make sure that there is no defect, especially if we're convinced that a defect in processing is associated with dysfunction and diabetes. Right, and we wanna, I mean, when cells are implanted, uh, islet implant happens, you know, they're not um, terminally differentiated uh, Mm -hmm. because of their oxygen requirements usually, right? So that's great, it would be great to have a nice little set of markers too you could depend on, and maybe this could be one of them. Yeah, absolutely. And perhaps a shift in pro-insulin levels marks cell maturation. That's an excellent hypothesis. Um, that's cool. Maybe when you get done with your residency, you can put that on your list. Uh, I, well, I'm fortunate to be continuing some work with uh, the Kiefer Lab and others. So I, I, uh, I don't intend to take a long break. I, I enjoy it. Yes. Yeah, that's great because it sounds like you're doing some important work in the space and you're very well versed in the literature, which is makes you even more powerful in the space. So yeah, I hope you do keep uh, at it and we're definitely going to be watching what you do next. Um, The Kiefer lab is um, just a great lab and we it's on our radar. And so we really appreciate you talking to us today. I do. um, I guess I just wanted to ask just to sort of wind down, you know, just talking to other researchers, I mean, you're an MD-PhD, um, everyone is sort of dealing with this pandemic in their own ways. Uh, how do you think, you know, do you have any advice to other young researchers, young graduate students, postdocs, other MD-PhDs, sort of as you guys wade through this unexpected challenge of the pandemic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's a great question. I wish there was an easy answer, but I think for me at least, uh, it's, uh, it's a matter of remaining grounded in, in why I'm pursuing what I'm pursuing, why I'm doing this all these uh, years of school. And it's of course, because of the patients that we've been 
talking about today because of the, you know, the patients that I see in the hospital that have diabetic ketoacidosis, that are losing limbs, that have kidney disease and need transplants. And, uh, you know, that's what motivates me to be creative, to find ways to be engaged in work that doesn't require as much lab time or to find ways to collaborate with others so that we can balance our uh, social distancing with wanting to still be able to make contributions. Uh, and, you know, I think everyone has to find their own unique recipe for what's going to work in their context, in their lab, in their, their types of research projects. But I think that as long as you uh, continue to, to be motivated for that end goal, that I think that uh, you'll find a way. Well, thank you so much, Adam. That was very inspirational. And um, we appreciate all that you're doing in this space. I hope you continue to use your excellent mind to approach this uh, very heavy you know, disease. So uh, thank you again for talking to us. We so appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's, it's really my pleasure. Thank you for your time. And I'd quickly, of course, like to also uh, thank my supervisor, Tim Keeper, and many other advisors I've had on the way and our many funding supports. Excellent. We wish you well. Thank you again.